Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen, and welcome to this, the Planeteers podcast. It's HBW. Welcome everybody to very, very exciting this, the first episode of the new Planeteers podcast, a podcast that's going to look at all sort of aspects of environmental and earth system science from an African perspective. I am your host, my name is Carl Palmer, and I work for uh, the Alliance for Collaboration on Climate and Earth System Science here in Cape Town, and they call me DC for short. Hi guys, my name is Precious and I'll be your co-host for this podcast. I am a PhD student at the University of Cape Town and I will be taking you through this journey with Carl. Hope hope it's exciting. Let's see what we've got in this first exciting episode. First up this week, as with every uh, week in the next 10 weeks, we have Precious here with your science news. Science news. Today for our news, we'll be looking into the Amazon fires. If you guys have been catching up with the news, you would have seen articles about what is going on in the Amazon. Just quick facts on why this is imp- why these are important and the implications for the habitability of our planet is the Amazon is our largest tropical rainforest and so which makes it a, a global carbon sink. 60% of the Amazon is housed in Brazil and this is where these fires have been happening so well today we'll just be looking at how this what are the implications of this in our enough for our planet and global warming and stuff like that so I've been reading a lot up on the fires and one thing that was interesting was that they have these fires annually to control the spread of alien species in the forest but what is the implications of why is the is it a big deal this time around? What's the big deal about those fires, Dr. Carl? As I understand from what I've read, one of the big changes that's happened is in the regulatory system in Brazil recently. With the new government that came in, they actually cut the funding for the Environmental Protection Agency there by 90%. They had a huge cut. And so that means that the fires haven't been regulated properly. The number of fines issued for illegal fires has dropped by also around 90%, the same amount as you've cut the funding, less funding, less uh, officers to go and issue the fines, yeah. means less fines, uh, means more burning. I mean, in addition to the alien species, as I understand it, one of the big drivers for the fires is actually uh, farming and particularly cattle grazing. They're actually trying to make land for meat production. But that would be a good thing because it will improve the country's economy so what is the trade-off between trying to improve the country's economy and trying to protect our planet so what is the what should be prioritized because i know that one of the government's arguments is that he promised that when he comes into office he's going to improve the country's economy and with the burning down and increasing agricultural land that will also in turn improve the country's economy so what is the trade-off 
I, I suppose you could start by answering that by saying it's not going to improve the economy once it's all gone, right? If you actually utilize the resource in an unsustainable manner, then eventually you are going to run out of it. But I mean, that having been said, it's, it's a really interesting question. I, I suppose the second point to make on that would be that there is a regulatory framework put in place to try and ensure that this resource is utilized in a sustainable manner and that if these are illegal fires then they are extra to uh, that uh, regulatory framework. It may well be that the new government doesn't agree with the old regulatory <laughs> and they're actually deliberately in encouraging this. I, I mean I suppose in terms of what is it, why is it that we care about it, right? Why do we not, are we not just happy for poor Brazilians to go and, and burn this down and sell some beef because we all like beef, right? That's great. Um, it's, um, you know, it's trite, but environmentalists love uh, uh, saying that it's the lungs of the planet. I know a lot of oceanographers get very upset about that because uh, the phytoplankton in the oceans <laughs> actually produce more oxygen than the rainforest. Yeah. But I mean, that having been said, the rainforest produce a huge amount of the oxygen that we breathe and contain a vast amount of species. Here in South Africa, we have the Fynbos with the highest beta diversity in the world. The Amazon rainforest is the forest with the highest alpha uh -huh. diversity in the world. And that is the number of species per uh, square meter. And there's all sorts of advantages come from conserving uh, biodiversity, none less than the fact that, I mean, do we really have a right to, to go and destroy all of those species? Interesting. So one other thing that came up in with sciences weighing in on the topic was that global warming and these deforestation can actually turn about two-thirds of the rainforest into a degraded savanna if global warming continues is that possible i'm not sure i have heard some people talking about the idea of tipping points that mm. if you destroy a certain percentage of the rainforest then the rest will follow and this is a big concept in uh, biology and in uh, climate change science in general that the earth system does appear to have these tipping points points beyond which you change things for good you push the ecosystem into another state but haven't we reached us this level of carbon in the atmosphere at some point in the past that's very true if we're talking about climate change. Mm -hmm. The carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has been much higher than it is currently, although there are two observations that you can make about that. The one is that it wasn't as a result of humans, and the other is it wasn't as a result of humans because there were no humans. That was a climate that the dinosaurs lived in that seems to favor dinosaurs very much. We have now moved to a colder, lower CO2 climate that appears to favor primates. So if you're interested in primates, i.e. us, uh, mammals and primates continuing, then you should be interested in not having the climate back to how it was when the dinosaurs uh, evolved. Okay guys, that's it for our news for today. So apparently there's more fires in Africa, but there's a lot of discussion that is going on on our Access Habitable Planet page. So go in and get into the discussions and you guys can go out and do your research as well on what is going on around. Because one of the major concerns about these fires is that they're becoming increasingly um, 
they've increased in the past years like this year in august it was twice the amount of fires that we had from last year so you can go in get into the discussions and we would like to hear what you have to say about it nice one Thank you very much, Precious, for this week's science news. Uh, next up this week, we have an interesting feature that we hope to do each week where we interview a young scientist or somebody involved with the Habitable Planets initiative across South Africa. We're going to head over now to our guy in the field, Pakiso, who was out at one of the last Habitable Planet workshops and recorded an interview with one of the planeteers called Dion. I'm handing over to you, Pakiso. Hey, 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 guys, welcome to HBW Podcast. You know, we are at Pretoria right now in University of Pretoria, of course, Hartfield, you know, I'm I'm with um, Dion here. Hey, Dion, how are you? I'm good, Paggy, so what's up? I'm good, I'm good, I'm good. So I'm going to be asking Dion some few questions, you know, regarding his experiences with HBW. So I'd like to know, Mr. Dion, like when first did you join HBW? I joined HPW I think in 2018, 20, right? HPW 26 was in 2018, yeah. So 2018 in Durban, that's when I first uh, went for uh, HPW. Okay, that's pretty interesting. This is the HPW that I also went to, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. that's when I first met you there. So uh, I'd like to know, how was your experience? No, my experience was fun-filled, uh, educational. A lot of, um, you know, when you go to some, you you thought you are going, when you think that uh, you're going to just be spending ten days um, doing nothing, and you actually get surprised to find out that there's a lot of science there. There's a lot of things that you are, that you will learn that you never knew in your in in your life. That was quite exciting, and uh, the the. the, the um, the co-lecturing team and how they exuded confidence in what they were doing. It was really an eye-opener for me. Me and my colleagues, we presented a special place which was Zimbabwe. That was the first time I got to present on an uh, HPW platform. Oh, you see guys how how this is so thrilling. You know, you got to learn the places he presented about Zimbabwe in which we didn't know. So we get to experience a lot. So, so like when was your second like HPW like your your journey with HPW? When did you go from from Deben? Okay, from Deben. What happened from Deben is that I was so motivated. I wanted to do more with HPW, so I applied for the co-lecturing um, workshop. I got accepted. I went to uh, Cape Town for the co-lecturing workshop in January 2019, where we were we had uh, was it three days of intensive yeah yeah it was three days right you, yeah yeah three days of intensive um, training on how to present our topics and how how to present our slides what to do on the stage uh, and uh, with the help of uh, the likes of Peter from Vula we were taught how to be to be able to present to do our presentations to do public speaking to be confident in what we were doing and uh, with the guidance of uh, Carl we were also even we were actually taught how to bring in the science bring to infuse the science and the fun together and uh, bring out a, a, a lecture that um, would not bore people. No, it was awesome. And then from there, from, from uh, Cape Town, 
then the journey brought me here to University of Pretoria for the HPW 29 where I am now co-lecturing and I had the opportunity to present uh, a core talk on introduction to modeling and then we uh, we went on to do uh, with my teammates uh, a workshop on modeling just to get the planeteers to give the planeteers a feel of what modeling is like Oh, that's pretty great. You know, it's it's pretty awesome that me and Dion, you know, have been traveling together. Yes. Like, it's like not <laughs> it's not the third time. Yeah, no, it's yeah. not the first time since we attended the HPW. Yeah. Like, I, I met I, I, I met him in Devon. Then we also went to Cape Town for collecturing training. Now and then now we are here, man. Oh man, that's this is awesome. This this really shows that in HPW, you know, it actually it actually motivates you to come back, right? Yeah. It's sort of uh, a family, you know, I've met uh, a lot of people through HPW. It's so amazing how you can actually be able to become so close to people who you never knew before. It was, it's, a, it's, a, it's, an, it's a humbling experience rather, if I can say that. Currently, I've just finished my honor, my, sorry, my master's uh, in hydrology and I'm now looking forward to go on to pursue PhD. Wow, that's great. I don't think I'll reach there, man. But, no, but you will. Wow, damn, that, that that that's really good. You know, I'm I'm amazed. Totally speaking, I'm amazed. So, I I want to know, like, what is your area of research, like, currently? Well, currently, I I my I I'm fascinated by climate change and water resources management. So my for my masters, uh, I was studying. Um, um, uh, I was evaluating water resources availability under a changing climate, right? So basically, I was uh, quantifying water resources in a basin, in Z one basin in Zimbabwe, which is Pungwe River Basin. So I was quantifying the current uh, water resources that's there, and then projecting using climate uh, models, uh, projecting into the future, uh, say into the. To the end of the 21st century like uh, one of my other arguments in my literature review for my research was actually influenced by hpw you know you remember when you watched that movie uh i'm, I'm forgetting the name but then the, that movie with uh, differing ideologies on climate yeah yeah i remember the the american yeah the, sort of. you see yeah that that, that, that movie actually got me to think like after attending HPW I actually realized there's another angle to this I had to go and research more into it I found a very very nice argument uh, about uh, the phenomenon called uh, climate change and then I, 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 I would say uh, it came out nicely and it's because of HPW and then when I went on to present my um, my, my 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 research and whenever i was supposed to present uh at school it became second nature to me after hpw because i now have the confidence i have the stage presence i have um, the right articulation because we were taught this especially after when we went for the core lecturing we were taught how to say our story how i mean say not just to give out uh, the science but tell a story using the signs and from then on i can say my research life has been well enhanced by uh the first the first time i i i applied for hpw i think that was the best uh decision of i ever made in my life 
Wow, that's really interesting. You hear people how HPW is playing a role in people's life. So do yourself a favor and apply for HPW. You know what? You're going to have the best experience ever. You're going to meet new people, new cultures. You know what I mean? You're going to learn about new countries, their lifestyle and everything. Everything like... So it's it's a great it's a great experience. Um, it was nice talking to you, Mr. Dio. Likewise, Pakiso. Like, likewise, Pakiso. Um, it's 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 been an honor. It's been uh, I I I can say for one that um, if ever you find anywhere written HPW application, whether it's online, whether it's a mini, it's a mini HPW. I'm telling you, sign up. Go for it. It will change your life. It will change your life. Exactly. And and it, it, it indeed it, it really changes life. You know, it really changes life. And and we not we are not just talking here. We are not just talking. We came back. Yeah. We yeah, came yeah. back. We, we yeah. came back. We came back. Like it's it's our third time. Yeah, you know, third, time third appearance. Yeah, so it, it was nice talking to you once again, Mr. Dion. No, likewise. Okay, nice one. Thank you very much, Pakiso and Dion. That was a really fascinating insights into the Planeteer experience. I totally agree with Dion. Actually. Habitable Planet workshops help you to build up your confidence as a young and an emerging scientist. And it's nice because you get you to get feedback from your peers. So it's like a nice space to grow. There's no pressure from your supervisors or your lecturers. You, It's young people and they give you constructive feedback and it's a nice space to grow. So I agree with Dion. That's Thank really you. nice to hear, really interesting. Okay. We're moving on now to the next exciting part of our podcast, which is where we try and focus on what the planeteers are doing in the online course this week. So this week in the Habitable Planet online course, which by the way, if you're not part of, you can still join. I will leave some links uh, below the podcast. Uh, This week in the online course, there's a lot about astronomy. So I have invited one of the alumni from Habitable Planet, who's an astronomer called Jerome. Jerome is going to tell us why does astronomy help make the planet planet habitable in one minute. It's time for the one minute science. One minute science. Hi, I am Jerome Bimutlenke from the University of the First State studying ABSC in physics and astrophysics. Astronomy is a natural science that focuses on celestial objects from stars to galaxies and the phenomena involving them with the aid of physics and chemistry. So basically, we study things outside the Earth's atmosphere. Studies in astronomy helps us understand the habitable zone, where it's not too cold and not too hot for liquid water to exist on a planet's surface, making it habitable. Okay, wow, thank you, Jerome, for that fascinating one-minute science. It's a really difficult task to try and actually explain the whole of one topic and how it impacts the planet in under a minute. He did it in like 40 seconds, so that's absolutely superb. Um, Next today, we have something quite special for you, and that's our brand new, I mean, everything's brand new, it's the first episode, but our brand new patented Science Theatre. Science Theatre. Welcome to the first episode of Science Theatre. In this episode, we are taking you back to a rainy day in England in the 1950s. Well, we don't actually know if it was raining, but it's England, so the chances are pretty good, right? 
two Cambridge professors, Crick and Watson, are meeting in a smoky pub called The Eagle. The Planeteers podcast team have carefully recreated the very moment DNA was discovered. You might wonder how we absolutely show this exactly and how it happened. Well, we know it's true because we made it up ourselves. Crikey, old chap. Isn't it good to get out of the lab and have a beer, Dr. Watson? Have that, Craig. Yeah, it's so good to get out of the English rain. I never got used to the weather here. Now, we can get back to our work, old chap. Finding the structure of DNA, the very secret of life. Well, yes, it's much easier to think in here without all those shrill voices of the female students around. I think having all these women around makes it more fun for the men, if you know what I mean. But they're so less effective at science. By the way, Watson really said this about female scientists recently. <clears throat> well, um, that's not exactly what I was thinking, old boy. Uh, but let's get down to it. So we know from its molecular weight that DNA is an ideal candidate for an information molecule. It's really big, so it could contain the information for life's codes. It's just, how could it do that? Well, um, no, that's not exactly what I was thinking, old boy, but let's get down to it. So, we know from its molecular weight that DNA is an ideal candidate for an information molecule. It's really big, so it could contain all the information of life's code. It's just, how could it do it? Um, I think I can help, actually help them. What we need is a structure that could change somehow and convert to a code, like a molecular Morse code or something. If we could just get the right structure, we could reveal the very secret of life. With it, we should be able to have the blueprint for any organism at all, telling you everything you need to know about it, even before it was born. Jeez, that would be remarkable, Dr. Craig. Imagine, we could tell a mother that her baby was going to be one of those little faggots. Can I, can I stop you there a minute? Did you just say faggots? Yeah, you know, those puffers, gay boys, homos. We could warn the potential mother about their disgusting abnormality before they have them and they could just abort those little shits. This is actually something Dr. Watson has literally said on record. Look it up. Okay, he didn't say that exactly. This is actually something Dr. Watson has literally said on record. Look it up. Uh, well, yeah, so, so much of that is just not okay. But let's try and focus on... Focus on the problem of blacks having low IQ. I mean, some liberals like to say they're as intelligent as us. Uh, until they have a black man working for them, that is. They soon find out how dumb these people are. Actual freaking Watson quote. Uh, no, I, I mean to focus on the matter in hand here. You, we know that the molecule has equal amounts of phosphorus, carbon and oxygen throughout. You can't code with something that just stays the same. But the amount of nitrogen varies. So that suggests, old boy, that in the nitrogen we can find the code. But we'd need some other data than what we have just to help us in thinking about finding the structure. Hello? 
guys, I have the data. Can you hear something high-pitched and annoying? Quite. I'm thinking we could start to guess at the structure, but it's thousands to one. How do we get the data? I've literally got the data. Oh, I'm sorry. Who are you? I'm Dr. Rosalind Franklin. A doctor? But you're a woman! You can't be a doctor! Whatever next. I can't call this Dr. Watson. I'm gonna call you Rosie. Once again, Dr. One Watson really did refuse to call Franklin with her title and gave her the nickname Rosie without her consent. I have X-ray diffraction data for DNA A and B forms. X-ray diffraction, you say? Yes, X-ray diffraction. I'm the specialist in it at my lab at King's College in London. What we do in these experiments is fire X-rays at crystalline form of a given substance and measure where they end up. A bit like doing an X-ray of a bo broken bone. The way the X-ray appear after scatter from the crystalline tells us about the crystal structure. It's a new technique, but in my hand, I have the first ever X-ray diffraction results for DNA. This should be the data you need to inform your guests at the structure. Dr. Craig, this woman is clearly talking too much on topics she can't possibly know about. Don't you hate it if women always chatter on things they know nothing about? Not only is she a woman, she's not even from Cambridge. How dare she presume to talk to us? Also, she's not very pretty. Perhaps if we figure out and solve the problem, we can try and make all women pretty. Yeah. He actually said that, in black and white. Rosie dear, thanks for dropping these data, but let the actual intelligent adult men take it from here. Come Craig, let's go to the gentleman only area where we can think properly. Yes gentlemen, today you are witnessing history. Watson and I have put together the first correct model of the structure of DNA. It's a double helix with a phosphate and sugar backbone running throughout. The code is written out with nitrogen nucleotides. Four different sorts, a kind of Morse code, if you like. The code of life is written with just these four letters, A, T, G, and C. Yeah, gentlemen, you've witnessed history here today, and Crick and I discovered it all ourselves, with no help from anyone. Can you believe it? And so, Crick and Watson were awarded the Nobel Prize for heroically discovering the structure of DNA completely alone, and they all lived happily ever after. Except Franklin, who died of ovarian cancer a few years later and never received acknowledgement for any of her work until decades after her death. Well, I am back to being DC. Welcome back, Carl. Welcome. Your American accent was terrible. Oh, come <laughs> now, it wasn't that bad. I <laughs> got the pictures. <laughs> but I, I suppose to sum up the story, one of the things that comes through is that 70 years ago, uh, racism and sexism within the sciences was a really common occurrence. But and I think that actually, you know, things have definitely changed, but there are some parallels with today. 
So I wanted to put it open to to the studio here. I mean, how does that relate? Does your experience every day in science uh, does that come up still? Well, Carl, although it has been seventy years, a lot of progress has been made. However, in various different facets of life, and not just in science, this problem still occurs. I mean. Given the fact that women we know are naturally better leaders than men, women are always put into secretarial or administrative roles, even in the science field. They never get recognition for the hard work and their intelligence. Do you feel like it's then just not a problem general to science, but one of the whole society? Or do you think there's more specific problems in science? It's very hierarchical. And then the problems do come in with science because men feel undermined when women take on the senior roles and are able to actually make better discoveries or go ahead than them in various fields such as programming for instance. Mm -hmm. So you feel like you know it's the kind of situation where the guy just appoints himself the chair and then only has two women just coming and doing bit roles. <laughs> <clears throat> no comments. <laughs> <laughs> and I think I think Okay, not exactly what you said, Carl, but it's still a problem because it's highlighted in, in the fact that there's still funding that is specifically aimed at attracting women into the field, which means there is that shortage of women um, representing, sorry, a short lack in representative of women in the science field. So it's still a problem because if we had reached a point where women are accepted as part of the science uh, field, we wouldn't be feeling the need to make an extra effort to try include them in the space. One of the points Professor George, the founder of Access, often makes, and might be interesting just to quickly touch on, is that he points out that there is exactly that. There is a lot across the world of bursaries and programs aimed specifically at addressing the lack of women in science positions, but very few that address the lack of black people in science positions. And he would argue that actually uh, the uh, lack of people of colour in these positions is more grave than the lack of women, and yet for some reason doesn't receive the same attention. Does that seem to fit your experience? Hmm. It's a bit of a situational based thing, I think, Carl. It differs from country to country, city sure. to city. I mean, within our South African country itself, there's so many different um, segregated groups within one province, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's very difficult to actually base this necessarily on a demographic um, case in this instance. Okay, makes some sense. All right, um, thanks. And that is this week's Science Theatre. Bye. Last up today, before we leave you, we have the Any Questions section. Any question? Alright, so in the Any Questions section, what we're going to do is answer your questions that you've had on the podcast or the course so far. Um, so we don't have any because it's the first episode. So in lieu of that, I am just going to invite uh, my co-host Precious just to tell you a little bit about what she does and then maybe we'll have some questions on that for next week. 
So guys, as I have mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, I am a PhD student doing my second year and uh, my research is on rainfall variability and change over the southeast coast of South Africa. So what I basically do is is to understand the rainfall characteristics and how they've changed over time. This includes things like the frequency of dry and wood spells and what are the drivers behind the patterns that we observe so that's what my research is basically about and this is important actually in the current state that we're in in south africa is most of the countries at a tipping point when it comes to water security and so my research will be very useful in actually getting an insight on what's going to happen with our what's happening with our rainfall patterns and how we can use this information for proper management and planning that sounds really interesting research. You're based at GCT. Yes. And how long have you been there? So I've been at GCT since 2012 from my undergrad and my That's a long time. postgraduate. Yes, it's a long time. Where are you originally from? Mpumalanga. Mpumalanga. Yes. How do they say goodbye in Mpumalanga? Uh, I just went blank. <laughs> <laughs> but Bye, bye. I don't know. Bye bye. <laughs> All right. Well, I guess that's it from us, and we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Bye. Please join us again next time on the next podcast. Brought you by the Habitable Planet Podcast was produced by Pakiso and Tinkulu. The studio team in Cape Town were Carl Palmer, Precious Mashvelela, and Asmita Singh. All voices in science theatre were done very badly, and any resemblance to actual people is both highly unlikely and purely coincidental.